Philippians chapter 3. If you don't have your own copy of God's Word here this morning, it's page 982 in the Pew Bibles, uh, or it'll be up here on the screen. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I would be remiss to say, uh, Brother Ronnie Turner wanted me to thank everybody who came out and everybody who wasn't able to come out for his ordination to the office of deacon yesterday. Really, uh, he was very grateful to see so much support from all of you. Uh, And so he asked me to pass that along, and I forgot to. Last week, well, I'm going to have to set this up. It wasn't last week. It wasn't the week before. It was three weeks ago, uh, because as some of you may have heard, we had some bad weather, and it kind of rescheduled things a little bit. We were studying in the book of 1 Corinthians. And now, the last time we were looking at it, we'd already seen the Corinthians had a problem. Their problem was that they were supremely arrogant. The Corinthians believed that their wisdom was the solution to everything. And because they believed that they were so wise and they were so good and they were so smart, they started to bicker with each other. They started to break into factions. And some of them said, well, I love Paul. Paul is the one that I follow. Paul is the great, wise man. I just love to listen to Paul. And some of them said, no, I like Apollos. Apollos has got this silver tongue. Apollos is a, is a great orator. He stirs your, whole, your heart. Some of them said, well, I like Peter. You know, Peter is the one that Jesus said, on this rock, I'll build my church. I like to have a lineage to me. And some of them said, well, I just follow Jesus and all these other people that wrote the rest of the Bible. I'm just going to kind of take the red words, and I'm going to make those my words, and the rest of you can just leave behind. And so when they each think, when they each break into teams, they each break into factions, the church starts to crumble. And so Paul is writing 1 Corinthians to them because their bickering and their divisions are not just hurting themselves, it's putting the very witness of the gospel at stake. Now, when we saw at the beginning of chapter 3 is Paul had outlined to them that they did not belong to themselves that they were God's garden. He uses, the King James uses the word husbandry, but it means a spot that has been cultivated, an area that's been set apart and tended to for planting, a a garden. He said, you're God's garden. He said, God sent me to plant. God sent Apollos to water, but God's the one who makes it grow. He says, you church at Corinth, you are God's garden. God has planted you here to be a beautiful place for himself. Now, but the last verse we looked at last time, which I don't have on the screen, is 3.9. For we are laborers together with God. You are God's husbandry or God's garden. You are God's building. He says, we're working together with God. You are God's product. You, church at Corinth, and I could say to you, you, church in Richwood, you are God's garden and you are God's building. Now, it seems like he's just kind of switching midway here. He'd been talking about gardening, and now he says, you're like a building too. And so to explain what's going on there, I'm going to have to get into some pretty sophisticated theology with you for a second. Way back, way, 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 way back, God made the world. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he saw that it was good. And you remember that God planted a garden in the eastern part of Eden, and he gave that garden to Adam and Eve. And the Bible says that in that garden, God walked with Adam in the cool of the day. They were together. Now, that spot 
was really the first sanctuary. It was the first place that man could come and meet with God. It was the the holy place, and the whole universe was God's temple. We looked at this, I don't know, a year ago, so maybe you don't remember, but we, we studied how the whole description of creation, the six days of creation and everything, God builds a temple, and then he furnishes it, and then he puts his image in the center of the temple. In a pagan temple, they put a statue of the God in the center of the temple in the holy place. But in God's temple the whole universe, he instead made mankind in his image and put us to represent him and dwell in his presence. So the whole universe is God's temple. We read, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Okay, does sound, sound familiar? The Garden of Eden was the first temple. But what happened? Adam took of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they, and Eve was deceived, and they fell into sin, and they were removed from God's place, and they were forced to wander. If you read the book of Genesis, it's really a story about homelessness, about people who cannot find a place where they belong. So Adam and Eve go out and they wander on the earth. There are temporary shrines that people build. They come back to Bethel, places like that. But ultimately, they just wander and wander and wander. Even when Moses comes along, Moses comes to Mount Horeb and he speaks to God at a burning bush. But that bush is not a permanent place. It's a spot. But then when God calls his people out of Egypt, he tells Moses to build a tabernacle, a tent. That's what tabernacle means. It means tent. To build a tent and that the presence of God is going to go with them in that tent. So in the middle of the camp, remember these people are marching across the wilderness. In the middle of their camp, there's a giant tent. And this is the tent where people go to have fellowship with God. Well, when they finally come into the land, Moses dies, Joshua takes over, Joshua leads them into the promised land. They continue to worship at the tabernacle until one day King David says, there's something wrong here. He says, I dwell in a house of cedar and God lives in a tent. And of course, God says to him, he says, I'm going to build God a temple. And he calls the prophet Nathan over. And he says, Nathan, is it okay for me to build God a temple? And Nathan says, sure, go ahead. That's a great idea. And then Nathan goes home and prays, and God says, you should have checked with me first. (laughs) Says, I'm not going to have this man with blood all over his hands build my temple. And so Nathan goes back to David and says, has God ever needed anybody to build him a place? God says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool, and will you build me a house to contain my glory? (laughs) Says, David, I don't need you to build me a temple. He says, but nevertheless, your son Solomon will build me a temple. And that temple was not built because God needed a place to be. We just said, heaven is his own, the earth is his footstool, the whole earth is full of his glory, the whole universe is his temple. But he says, I'm going to build a place where people can come and fellowship with me because sin has clouded my presence. So he builds this temple, Solomon does. And the temple, it's well known, there's an outer court It's almost the size of a shopping mall. It's huge. It has three or four football fields by the time it's ultimately finished in Herod's day. Inside of that, there is the the courts of the priests. Inside of that is the holy place. And the holy place is the place that only the priests are allowed to go where they make the sacrifices. But maybe you know this. Inside of the holy place, there is a room that's a perfect cube. That room is called the Holy of Holies or the holiest place. And there's nothing in there except the Ark of the Covenant. And then inside the Ark of the Covenant are three things. The Ten Commandments, 
the manna that they put in a jar from the wilderness and Aaron's rod that budded. Okay. And once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest goes in and sacrifices an animal and he puts the blood on the mercy seat. So the, the Ark of the Covenant's got a throne on it with angels' wings and everything built in. And on the throne he comes and he sprinkles blood. And the idea is that when God looks down, well, let me step back for a second. What color is sin? Anybody know? In Isaiah, God says, come, let us reason, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, I will make them like snow. Okay? Now, have you ever seen one of those decoder rings they put in a cereal box? If I hold, they don't put them in cereal boxes anymore. You're going to have to use your imagination. If I take a piece of clear red plastic, like a decoder ring, and then I've got red written somewhere, and you know how they do it. They print something in black, and they put the red all over it. And when you're looking through the red, you can't see the red anymore. Isn't that right? So God looks down from heaven. It's a metaphor. Okay, God doesn't. God looks down from heaven at the Ark of the Covenant. And at the Ark of the Covenant, he sees our sin. He sees the commandments that we've broken in the Ten Commandments. He sees the blessings that we've ignored in the manna. And we see his, he sees the guidance and leadership he's provided that we've turned our back on in Aaron's rod that led the people out. And he sees all that sin. But when the high priest comes and sprinkles the blood of the lamb on top of it, God no longer sees the sin. He sees the blood instead. And so this is the spot where people come to fellowship with God. But you know, if you're familiar with the history of the Bible, that the people fall into deeper and deeper sin. They are ultimately carried away into slavery. And the Ark of the Covenant is lost. Uh, what we know from secular history, although the Bible doesn't explicitly say it, is that when they were taken into slavery and they were brought back in the days of Nehemiah, the center of the temple was empty. The Ark of the Covenant's not there. We know that because a Roman emperor waltzed in there one day and wrote about how it was empty, how these people didn't even have a statue to worship. Now, then something else happened. So where, here's the question. If the presence of God, the glory of God left because of their sin, if the presence of God is not there for them to worship, how can they come and have a place that, where they belong? How can they come and have a place for God? Well, finally, an angel comes to Mary and says, You will have a child, and you will call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And then for 33 years, the place where heaven and earth meet, the place where you can, the physical place you can come to where the presence of God is fully, is the person of Jesus. Jesus is the place where heaven and earth meet. And when, we know this because you remember when they come and they threaten Jesus, he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll build it again. And they say, oh, are you going to destroy Solomon's temple? But the Bible says they didn't understand Jesus was talking about his body. The presence of God in a physical place was the living, breathing body of Jesus. God become flesh. And if you wanted to come and worship God truly, you did it in Jesus. And that's still true today. Jesus died, and he was buried, and he rose again. He was with them for 40 days, and then he ascended into heaven. So where is the physical place that people worship Jesus now? 
We can't go to the Garden of Eden. We can't go to the tabernacle. We can't go to the temple. We can't go to the physical body of Jesus because Jesus is at the right hand of God. So where is the presence of God? The presence of God walked with them in the Garden of Eden. The presence of God came like a fiery pillar and a a pillar of cloud on the tabernacle. In the temple, it says the brightness of God came in and it was so bright the people couldn't go in. In Jesus, you know, we beheld his glory as of the only begotten son of the father, full of grace and truth. Where is the presence of God now? Well, you remember during Jesus' earthly ministry, he called out a group of people. And he called these people out who had been saved, who'd been baptized to follow him and came together and said, you are my church. You are my ecclesia. And he established his church during his earthly ministry. And seven days after he ascended into heaven, his church was gathered in the upper room and the presence of God came down and the Holy Spirit came and dwelled among them. So where, where is the temple of God today? It's not this building. It's not any physical place. It's you. And it's not just you individually, although that's true. The Holy Spirit lives in your heart individually. 1 Corinthians 3 has said, is about to say, that ye, y'all, are the temple. Unity Missionary Baptist Church in Richwood, Texas, is God's temple. The church at Corinth, in Corinth, Rome, Achaia was God's temple. When we assemble together here, the presence of God is here tangibly and powerfully. If people want to experience God, they don't go to the physical body of Jesus that now sits at the right hand of the Father. They come to the body of Christ assembled here. When people want to experience the presence of God, there is truly no better place to go than an assembled local church. And I wonder how lightly we treat that. I wonder how many of you have ever even really heard that, ever even really thought about that. You know, and it won't always be the case, because if you read the book of Revelation, what happens? The New Jerusalem comes down, and the New Jerusalem is a city built four square. It's a cube. It's a sanctuary. It's the Holy of Holies. But it says the New Jerusalem is dressed as a bride adorned for her husband. Who's the bride of Christ? The church is. You see it? Do you see that? You see that thread of how God has always provided for there to be a place for his people to come and meet with him. And today, that place is you. I told you we're going to get into some deep theology. I hope you came with your thinking hats on. And so when he starts out saying, you are the garden of God. And then he says, you are God's building. You're God's temple. He's not switching midway. He says, church at Corinth, when you assemble together, you are nothing less than God's temple. You are nothing less than the new Eden. You are the place where people can come and walk with God in the cool of the day. That's pretty incredible. That's very incredible. That's mind-boggling if you could just for a second get your arms around that, about the fact that right now you are in the Garden of Eden. I always imagine the Garden of Eden would, I don't know, smell like fruit or something. You are in paradise. You're in the place where people can meet with God. Now, if that doesn't take your breath away, I don't know. I don't know what to do with you. Even in the temple, there was all kinds of uh, 
imagery. There were plants carved into the walls and different things to remind these people that they were in this temple now, but that there had been a time before when the whole world, was, or the whole human inhabited world was a garden where people walked with God and they didn't have to come to a temple as a substitute. And now the temple of God is alive once again because it's made up of men and women, boys and girls who know Jesus as their Savior, been set apart and covenanted together to be his body. That's pretty powerful. And so I, I could give you, if we had two or three hours, I'd take you to some of the texts in the Old Testament to prove that. Probably the most important one is Joel 2, but we don't have time to look at it. But would you look with me now then? He says, said in verse 9, we're laborers together with God. Ye, ye means y'all, you means you, ye means y'all. Y'all are God's husbandry, God's garden. Y'all are God's building. I'm going to read through verses 10 through 17 very quickly, and then we'll go back and look at them. But I want you to catch this. I want you to catch the scope of this. He says, According to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he has built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so is by fire. Know ye not that ye, y'all, are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple y'all are. You are God's temple. You, y'all, are God's temple built on the foundation of Jesus Christ, built with different things, have it to stand until the last day for your works to be revealed by God. There's a lot there. Let's pray and then we'll look at it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, Lord. We thank you for the great blessing that we have to be the people among whom you dwell, to be your people and know that you are our God. We just ask, Father, that as we study your word today, that we would be motivated to build into this temple well, to be captured with wonder and to overcome with awe at the glory of the fact that you have not chosen the most marvelous structure in the world as your dwelling place, but you have chosen this imperfect amalgamation of people, Lord. We just ask, Father, that as we think about this, that we would behold your love, that we'd behold your glory, and that we'd be motivated to be holy fellow workers with you through it all. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, building the church. That's our thought today. <laughs> building the church. The church is the temple. And Paul said, you know, I came in, I planted the church, I established the church. Apollos came and he watered it and got you matured. And he says, now you're building yourselves up. He says, but be careful how you do it. So look here in verse 10. He says, according to the grace of God, grace means gift. You know, grace is unmerited favor. He says, God's given me a gift. 
And he says, that gift was that, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation. Paul's gift was a church planter. You know, Paul went to places and he started churches. Paul did not pastor churches for long periods of time. The longest he stayed anywhere was two and a half years. Paul was somewhere for a little while, established them, and then left. That was the gifting that God had given him. Uh, Corey Page, who we support monthly, does that. He goes, he's in Austin, and uh, he starts a church in one part of Austin, brings somebody else in, he moves to a different part of Austin and starts another church, try to build a, a ring of churches around Austin to support each other and reach that area with, with the gospel where there's uh, relatively little gospel presence. You know, that's um, Brother John Strader is not a pastor. He's a missionary in Kenya, and what he does is he goes to a region of Kenya, and he establishes a church, he witnesses to people, and he raises up a native Kenyan to be the pastor. And then he goes and starts another one. And then periodically the native Kenyans will come to him and he'll teach them. And then he'll go, they'll go back out and teach it to their churches. So he's a church planter. He's, that's the grace that God has given him is to establish new churches. Now, some people, that's not their gifting. That was not Apollos' gifting. Apollos was not the one who came in and started the church. He was the one who came in and watered, motivated them, built them up. There's different people have different gifts. And, you know, it's not that one's better than the other. It's that some have got different skills. And so, in the grace of God, a church should have the right person at the right time, the person with the right giftings to meet the needs of that church at that time. So he says, I've been given this grace. The gift that was given to me is to come in as a wise master builder. Now, wise master builder, the word master builder is the word we get our word architect from. But it was somebody who designed it and who oversaw the construction. And he says, I was a wise master builder. And if you've been here for our earlier studies in 1 Corinthians, you remember that what it meant to be wise was a real point of contention with the Corinthians. And so he's kind of jabbing them a little bit, saying, you think you're wise? Well, the wisdom that I have is to know the gift God has given me and to do the gift that God has given me. The most important gift you can have is to stay in your lane, see what God has gifted you to do and to do it. He says, a wise master builder, I've laid the foundation. He said, I came in, I got it started, I laid the foundation of this temple. And another buildeth thereon. Here's an interesting thing is if you fly to Israel today, do you know you can see the foundation of the temple? The temple was built, it was destroyed, it was built, destroyed. Today, there is the, um, the Dome of the Rock is there. But you know what that rock is? That rock is Ornan's threshing floor, the place where the Ark of the Covenant sat, the Holy of Holies. That foundation's still there. In fact, if you go to Capernaum, um, I should have brought a picture. I should have put a picture up. When you go to Capernaum, there's a synagogue built there in Capernaum. But the foundation is a mess. And this temple, this synagogue, was built way later than the foundation. The foundation dates back to the time of Jesus. The synagogue dates four or 500 years after that. Why did they build on a lousy foundation? Well, because in that culture, once you had the foundation, the foundation was the building. So the synagogue is this foundation. Forget about the rest of it. And so they would just continually rebuild on that spot. We know a thing or two about bad foundations here, right? Everybody... Everybody lives in Southeast Texas understands what we mean when we talk about a foundation. Listen to sermons of preachers, you know, in other areas, and they have to explain the importance of a good foundation. But I think that all of you get it, okay? I think, I think most of you have cracks on your walls to prove that you get it. The foundation built 
here is unchanging. The foundation is Jesus. The structure may shift, but the foundation is what counts. And so he says, I've come in as a wise master builder, and I've built, I've laid out this foundation, and somebody else, another, buildeth thereon. Somebody else has come and built on the foundation that I laid in Corinth. I've left. But, and somebody else is building now, and that's great. He says, but let every man take heed how he buildeth thereon. He says, you're building on the temple that God had me lay, so you better take very seriously how you build into God's temple. Now, I'm sure you guys have heard the little illustration. There was a man who was a builder who was sick and tired of his job, ready to retire. And his boss came to him and said, will you please build one last house for me? He said, yeah, I'll do one more, and this is it. So he comes in, and he cuts corners, and he you know, doesn't uh, put the rebar in the foundation like he ought to, and he doesn't do everything up to code. He just kind of skirts by to try to get done. And he finally finishes this last house. And the boss comes to him and says, you have been such a good builder for me for so long. You don't know it, but I've had you build this house for you. Here are the keys. Now, if you knew you were building your house, there are certain things you'd want to be right. If you were building a place for God to live, you're not going to cut any corners. You're not going to say, well, you know, we'll, we'll cover that up with some, apart, with some caulk later. You know, just paint that. Nobody will ever know. Say, do we really need this many breakers or whatever? You know, <laughs> if you're building a place for God, if you're building a place for somebody that you loved, you're not going to cut any corners. Paul says, the church is God's temple built on the foundation of Jesus. So you better make sure that you are building something worthy of the foundation you have, and you better make sure that you're building some place that is worth God living. That's not talking about this building, right? This building, God couldn't live in this building. God lives in our midst. This church was just a regular old building until you all got here this morning and assembled in the name of Jesus. And when you assembled in the name of Jesus, God showed up. And right now, the power of God is here. The holiness of God is here as surely as if it were a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire. God's in this place. And he says, when you are teaching other people, when you're witnessing, when you're building this church, you better be careful how you do it because this is going to be my house. I really I like uh, what Gordon Fee said about this in his commentary. He says, Paul's point is unquestionably warning. It is unfortunately possible for people to attempt to build the church out of every imaginable human system predicated on merely worldly wisdom, be it philosophy, pop psychology, managerial techniques, relational good feelings, or what have you. But at the final judgment, all such building, and perhaps countless other forms where systems have become more important than the gospel itself, will be shown for what it is, something merely human, with no character of Christ or of his gospel in it. Often, of course, the test may come this side of the final one. And in such an hour of stress, that which has been built of modern forms of wisdom usually comes tumbling down. He goes on, though. But the good news of the passage is that one does not need to build badly. That which has the character of the foundation, Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, will not only survive any present hour of testing, but will enter the final judgment as a glorious church, 
and those responsible for such building will receive their due reward, which is itself an expression of grace. You better be careful how you build God's house. You say, you know, if you come to church and you just kind of go through the motions and, you know, you're not, you're not, your heart's not present, your mind's not present, your hands are not present, then you need to understand that you are building the church. You are building up other people. But you're building them up with trash. And that trash will not survive the testing. Whether the testing of when something hard happens and people get divided because their relationships were skin deep, or the final testing of the fiery judgment of God when there are no secrets left. That's, oh, it's already 11.50. Goodness gracious. Okay. Look, if you will, then. He says, let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. First off, because you have to, you're building on this foundation. Second, though, for other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He said, you need to be careful how you build. And really implied in this is you need to be careful where you build. Are you building your life on Jesus? Are the things this church is built on, the things we work on, is that based on who Jesus is? Or is it based on something else? You know, sometimes churches say, well, you know, we've always done it this way. This is the way that my grandfather did, or this is the way that my whatever did, or whatever. Well, they may have been building an outhouse off to the side, and it may not be on the foundation. It doesn't matter if it's an old outhouse. It's not worth your time. And we put some things that are precious in some things that are worthless. You know, I, I, don't, I don't want to get off in the weeds, mostly because it's 1151 now. But when you are building something, there's a lot of traditions, there's a lot of this, a lot of worldly wisdom... And worldly wisdom can be old or it can be new. You know, you can say, well, we've always done it this way, and that way may be wrong. You say, well, this is the new way to do it. You know, this is how you reach people, and that way may be wrong. He says, be careful how you build, because there's only one foundation that will stand, and that's to build it on Jesus. (laughs) And what does it look like to build on Jesus? Well, we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So if you want to have a church that's built on the foundation of Jesus, you're going to have two things at least, grace and truth. So you're not going to compromise what the Bible says, but you're also going to be flexible with who people are. You're going to love people and be with them and point them to what God has for them and what God expects of them, grace and truth. And any system for building a church, building up people that gets away from those two things is not built on the foundation. And it ends up, well, you know, we sing the song out of the Sermon on the Mount. The wise man built his house upon the rock. You know, the foolish man built his house upon the sand. You know that song? The foolish man built his house upon the sand. The rains came down and the floods came up. The rains came down and the floods came up. And how does it end? And the house upon the sand went splat. How would you like that to be your life story? You know, if a really honest person picked out your tombstone, it's like Justin Gatlin, born, you know, June 19th, 1992, died this day, you know, and then a Bible verse and the house upon the sand went splat, you know, (laughs) I got a friend who uh, said that the verse that was going to need to be on his tombstone was from the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. He said, well, what verse are you talking about? And he said, well, and the beggar died. So... (laughs) 
The, you've got this sense here that where you build matters and how you build matters because you need to build on Jesus for the glory of God. He says, now if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest for the day shall declare it. Now, when we had the front part of the church done, uh, the sheetrock uh, floated and taped, textured and everything, it looked pretty good until we got the lights hooked up. And then you could see it. And then it didn't look so good anymore. There are some things that look okay in the dark that when the day comes, the day reveals them to be not so great. <laughs> there are some people who build up a church and then it reveal, later on it's revealed that that church was a whole lot of nothing. There are some things that seem like a whole lot of nothing, though, that when the day comes, it's got the glint of gold in it. You don't know. So the day will reveal it. The day will reveal whether you use the ones that are perishable, wood, hay, stubble, or imperishable, gold, silver, precious stones. And the house of God deserves a whole lot better than wood, hay, and stubble. Wood, hay, and stubble, worldly wisdom, doing things my way, saying, well, this is the way I like it. This is me. Traditions built on top of things or the latest fads, whichever it is, it's wood, it's hay, it's stubble. And when fire comes, it's gone. It says, for the day will declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. That is the day. You'll know the day of the Lord has come. That's the daylight in one sense that reveals things. And of course, that day is the day of the Lord when Jesus returns and every, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. That's the day when every man has to give an account of his works. And you're going to have to stand before God and give an accounting for who you, what you've done with the life that God's given you. And in that day, there's going to be no hiding. It shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. This fire is not, you know, the, our, our Roman Catholic friends quote this verse and say this is talking about purgatory. It's not talking about the people being in the fire. It's talking about your works being put through the fire. It's talking about the church coming through and the church being purged by fire. The false works, the false converts, the people that were never really saved are revealed to not be part of it at all. The things that we've done that were really for our own glory and our own way do not enter into the new Jerusalem. That's not part of God's eternal temple. Fire reveals it. In Joel 2, it says that the fire goes and there is Eden before it. See that? You see that, that double thing again? The temple as the new Eden? Us as the new Eden, us as God's temple? tested. So when you do your works, you need to be aware that you will have to account for those works. He said, if any man's work abide that he hath built thereupon, then he shall receive reward. There's rewards in heaven. There's, there's the, you know, we don't know very much about it at all. You, know, you receive a crown and you lay that crown at the feet of Jesus. I think that your reward is more ability to glorify God in eternity, but I don't know. I don't know for sure what all it is. But he says, you'll receive reward, you'll be honored in heaven so that you can honor God if you did the right thing. How would you like to be there at the throne of God when everybody else is able to lay crowns down for serving well, but everything you had was burned up in the fire and you don't have anything to lay at the feet of the one who died for you? That'd be hard. I don't want to live like that. 
I want to know that I've built into God's people, which, are, which is his temple, using gold and silver and precious stones. I want to know that I gave my very best and did it in God's way so that it stands. So the judgment will come and reveal what's good and what's bad. Now, if you're saved, look what it says. If any man's work shall be burned, then he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so is by fire. You can enter into heaven without those works, but you're going to smell like smoke. You know, <laughs> you can enter into heaven without those works, but you will not have the capacity to glorify God like you'll want to when your heart's made right. And that's because the foundation of Jesus Christ has already been tested. The foundation of Jesus has already been judged. On the cross, Jesus died in the place of mankind, and God poured his wrath out on Jesus. Jesus shed his blood. Jesus died in your place and in my place. He's purged. He's clean. He's been found solid. The foundation of Jesus will never be shaken. But the stuff that we build on him still has to be tested at the last day. You're going to have to give an account of your life to God. And will you be ashamed when when you spent 80 years of your life or however much time God gives you and it all burns up in smoke? So he's told us, we need to be careful where we build. We need to build on the foundation of Jesus Christ, the foundation that was laid when this church was started, when the church at Corinth was started. We need to build well with the right things in the right way if we're going to receive a reward. But then finally, what happens if we tear down instead of build? How seriously does God take that? He says, know you not that ye are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. He said, don't you realize, church, that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit is here? When Moses went and he stood by the burning bush, he took off his shoes because he was standing on holy ground. When the priests went into the temple, they performed all kinds of ritual baths and different things before they entered in to stand in the presence of God. How do you prepare your heart? You know, it's not about what you look like on the outside, but it is about your heart. You take seriously the fact that you enter in here in the presence of God. And what kind of things do we bring into the presence of God? What kind of filth is on our hearts as we enter into the presence of God? Did people bring gossip and anger and complaining and, you know, or whatever into God's house today and smear it? Don't you know that you are the temple of God and the Holy Ghost dwells in you? If any man defile, if any man contaminate the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. This is not talking about you as an individual believer as the temple of God. He'll talk about that later in 1 Corinthians. But he's saying the church is God's holy temple. And God takes it very seriously how his temple is treated. Holy means set apart. Holy means righteous, brought, taken by God to himself. You, church, have been given the incredible privilege of being the holy place that God has put his presence. 
you are in paradise. This is Eden right now. I like, well, you, you remember, I've quoted before when Adrian Rogers said, sometimes people say that people don't preach like they used to. And he said, some of them do, you just don't hear like you used to. <laughs> if you don't recognize that this place is paradise, if you don't recognize the presence of God here, the problem is not what's here, because it's a fact from the word of God that this is the temple of God. It's that you don't see and you don't hear and your heart's not feeling like your heart ought to. And so today you've got a couple questions. One, if you are a Christian, are you building into God's church the way that God would have you to? Gold, silver, precious stones, giving your best to God because you recognize that this group of people around you is the place where God is worshipped, the place where God dwells. Or do you kind of give God some leftovers, wood, hay, stubble, you know, dust? So here, let's see if we can't get some wood putty here, fill this in. You know, I've got some extra lumber, a little bit of flood water on it, whatever, and kind of contribute to God with that. Do you give God what's left or do you give God your best? If you're not a Christian, then I want to tell you that you can build your life all you want. You can do everything that crosses your mind. You can be great. You know, you can be the best singer and the hardest worker and the best giver and all these different things. But if it's not built on the foundation of Jesus, if it's not built with deep roots in Jesus where you've recognized you were a sinner and you've placed your life in the one who's already been tested for you, then the house upon the sand went splat. (laughs) So this morning as we stand and as our musicians come forward, I want you to make a decision. I want you to make a decision that if you've never trusted Jesus, and make a decision that if you are far from God, that you come close to Him. That if you've been living and serving in a way that brings no honor to God, that you will change that now. Are you going to sing really loud? 
We thank you that your presence is here with us, that your glory is revealed in and among us. We just ask, Father, that you help us to build in a way that will stand. You'd help us not to be caught up in human divisions or worldly wisdom or anything that is anything less than something worthy of the foundation. That we build our lives, that we build our church on the foundation of your son who died 